So welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic. We're going to be talking about the layers in blockchain technology. So these are kind of banded around a lot. We have the terms, you know, layer zero, layer one, and layer two, and they refer to different layers of the blockchain infrastructure. And they each serve a distinct purpose in the blockchain ecosystem. And understanding these layers is actually extremely crucial for grasping how complex blockchain networks can actually operate and how they can be scaled and optimized. And yeah, that's the topic that Jack and I are going to be exploring in today's episode. But before we get there, Jack, how are you doing today, my friend? Yeah, all good. Thanks, Alec. Uh, feeling pretty good. Excited to cover this topic, actually. This is a very important one, and it's a bit of terminology that you really have to get right, I think, to talk about all sorts of other topics, right? And we're going to be talking about zero knowledge systems in future episodes. So this is definitely an important one. So maybe just to start things off. We've mentioned already layer zero, layer one, layer two. I've also heard the, the term layer three coming in recently, but we're not going to cover that in today's episode, maybe in a future one. But just to set the scene, so we've done episodes already on blockchain. We covered blockchain in detail. We all understand what that is. For the purposes of today's episode, consider blockchain as layer one, right? That's what we're thinking of as layer one. So layer one is then sandwiched between something below it, layer zero, and then something above it, layer two. And essentially, the idea is layer zeros are basically infrastructure to enable and build layer ones, blockchains on top of. And then you have layer twos, which are designed to help scale layer ones, layer one blockchains. Okay, so that's at a high level, kind of what we were kind of hoping to, to go through today, right? Boom, done. Episode over. We've solved it. <laughs> no, just kidding. That was easy. Um, so, so that's the high level intro. And now should we just jump into it? I guess it makes sense to start at the beginning, which really is layer naught, but it's, it's a bit more fluid than that, right? I guess. Um, so layer naught is, as Jack said, the network infrastructure layer. And this is really foundational. And it's quite a broad concept i guess like it's kind of this i guess includes all of the hardware the networking technologies that underpin you know not just blockchain technology but underpin messaging internet all these kind of things when we talk about you know tcp ip the actual communication protocols this is really what we're talking about and they underpin absolutely almost everything we do in blockchain technology so that is layer zero yeah and i think basically now we're talking about what's known as an abstraction layer model and you have an abstraction layer model for the internet itself right forget web3 for just a moment so we have in web2 we have what's known as a tcpip model transmission control protocol and internet protocol model and that splits up how we understand the internet into a series of layers so everything from the network layer the base layer as you said how messages get communicated up to the application layer, which is kind of what you see when you're online and when you see on a website or on an application or something. And when we're talking about layer zero, layer one, layer two in the blockchain web three world, this is kind of a separate abstraction uh, model that I, we're talking about here. In practice, most blockchains and L0, L1, L2 all actually operate on top of the TCP IP abstraction model. Mm. So just before I get out the gate, it's important to understand that we're talking about something separate. But when we're referring to layer zero in the Web3 context, it's similar or analogous to the network layer in TCP IP, right? That base layer that you can build all the blockchains on. 
Okay, that makes sense. And I guess what the so the reasoning here is that when we think of like say blockchain technology that's kind of underpins most of what we do in Web three, we talk about like distributed networks, right? And that kind of assumes a degree of messaging between nodes that are spread across say different regions, different areas, different actors. And it's not we don't actually have to say that it's completely necessary to use the internet to do that, to achieve that, right? We use the internet to communicate, say, what the state of play is, transactions between two parties with the network, for example, because that's the most efficient way to do it right now. But we could, in theory, use mobile connections. We could use I know, RFID tags, Bluetooth, all this kind of stuff. We just kind of refer to the internet, TCP, IP, because that's the most efficient way, as we all know, to kind of transact and transmission around the world. Yeah, and it's obviously battle tested. We use it in everything else in Web two, so it makes sense that most of it is built on top of on top of TCP/IP. Um, but kind of crucially, with layer zero in a blockchain context, so think about what you actually need. Right? Why do we need networking? Well, as we say, Bitcoin as an example, you have the software to run. So even if you're going to be validating and building transactions and blocks and things like that. You have the software, but then you also have this network of other nodes you need to communicate with, right? You need to send transactions and blocks to other people. Even if you're not running the software yourself, you might need to send it in from your wallet, for example. So there is an, a, there is a notion of networking or network connectivity that you need from all the different actors. And layer zero is referring to everything at that kind of layer. Now, there's also, just to muddy the waters a little bit more, there's also what people call layer zero blockchains, okay? So you don't need a layer zero blockchain for a layer one blockchain to work. And mm -hmm. this gets complex very quickly. I think we'll talk about L0 blockchains in a separate episode because they're the whole thing unto themselves. But the thing they're focused on is not necessarily just letting blockchains exist. L0 blockchains are these kind of special general purpose chains or networks designed to let other L1 blockchains communicate. So maybe your Ethereum and your Solana to communicate with one another. And there's a few examples of that like Polkadot, Cosmos, you'll have seen, which we'll definitely go into in a future episode, but it's just crucial to know that they're all about this kind of interoperability idea in Web3. Okay, that makes sense. But for now, we're going to try and keep it simple and say that this is just, you know, the underlying infrastructure that enables us to build blockchain technology on top of right now, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so that's layer zeros, the, the hardware, the infrastructure, the protocols that enable basically the network to propagate transactions to really support the things that are going on top, which is the layer one. Now, this is the bread and butter of the podcast. Hopefully, you've listened to our uh, second episode, I think, which is on blockchain technology, where we really go into some of the details of what a blockchain is. But just to recap some of that. Um, the layer one, like we said, is the blockchain architecture. This includes, you know, the blockchain protocol itself. If we're talking about Bitcoin, it can be, you know, the consensus mechanisms, how blocks and transactions are propagated. We can have Ethereum as an alternative layer one, for example, or other standalone blockchain technologies. And quite crucially, I think typically when we talk about blockchains, it's a decentralized ledger and they just record transactions across many computers. And we kind of, we've talked about it a few times now. We refer to this as like the piping of Web3, but I guess that gets a bit confusing because maybe the layer zero is really the piping and this is like what the infrastructure is built on top of the piping maybe the <laughs> toilets whatever that is yeah that's what i mean it's very abstract when you go down to the l0 stuff that we were just talking about but i think it's much easier to visualize and understand what we mean with l1 as we said the network of bitcoin nodes for example or ethereum validators who are maintaining the blockchain directly who are adding transactions propagating transactions talk to other people and things like that so this is yeah as you said this is the bread and butter this is what we think of in our mind's eye when we talk about blockchain and a lot of web3 this is what underpins 
everything on top of it, right? That's kind of idea with the layering is that each lower layer under, underpins the next layer. And for most intents and purposes, all you'd ever need to worry about is, okay, what blockchain am I using? And then what applications on top of that are using that layer one blockchain. But yeah, so as you said, blockchain, we know the characteristics broadly. It's a distributed ledger for recording transactions immutably and then doing payments and things like that. Also doing smart contracts in some cases with uh, various blockchain platforms. It's the facilitator for all of the fun stuff we can do at Web3. Yeah. And, you know, when we're kind of talking about the layer zero stuff, there's very like few important kind of protocols that we're talking about. Very standardized, very used across the board. As that's why the internet's so successful. When we talk about blockchains, the layer one stuff, well, there's thousands of blockchains, right? There's maybe like 30 or 40 that are incredibly popular, each of them being slightly different, which, you know, the lack of standardization there actually probably doesn't help the ecosystem generally. And we've kind of said in previous episodes, we expect there'll be maybe a few that kind of end up being the victors and everyone uses them as their layer ones to build everything on top of. But yeah, Jack highlighted some of the key characteristics there, which are the consensus mechanism, maybe the native token they use, the security model, all this kind of stuff. But importantly, to lead us on to, you know, layer twos and the need for having layer twos, there's kind of three characteristics that we really want to focus on for layer ones. We'll go through them right now. So the first one is scalability. So this is effectively the blockchain's capacity to handle a large number of transactions. I think Jack and I have spoken about this in detail is that, you know, a lot of kind of the major blockchains right now, Bitcoin, Ethereum, they don't have much scalability. That's the kind of the conception is that most people don't think they have the kind of level of scalability to support, you know, the internet of value. If a blockchain was to really be the internet of value right now, which is the piping of Web3 to handle all the data that is transmitted theoretically, that would need to handle around five exabytes daily, which is 1 billion gigabytes daily. And obviously that is not feasible on say Bitcoin, for example. You know, if Bitcoin alone was to just be the digital cash system of the world right now, it would need to do billions of transactions every day. So scalability is the first kind of characteristic we want to talk about when we consider these layer ones. And as you can probably tell already, it's not actually suitable or fit for purpose in the current implementation. Yeah, it's one of the hottest topics, isn't it, in Web3 scalability and, you know, five exabytes per day. Half of that's probably just your search history, Alec, and God knows <laughs> how, much, how much. Don't give it all away. Don't give it all away. But no, so yeah, scalability is hugely important. The second piece of the puzzle or the big characteristic that people talk about with the L1s is obviously security. And it's one of the big value propositions of something like Bitcoin or Ethereum is that they're deemed a very secure way of transacting, right, and then holding funds building applications because they're public networks they're in the public they can be attacked and are probably being attacked constantly typically the bigger ones like bitcoin and ethereum don't have many vulnerabilities or they haven't shown themselves to be vulnerable right so the mechanism by which they are secured is different in different cases so obviously in bitcoin we have the proof of work model alongside the kind of the fact that everything is public and you can see what's going on transparently so that you know only very dedicated individuals, these miners contribute really to the security of the system, but you have them investing a lot of money, a lot of power, resources, electricity, for example, in securing the network. So you have a lot of backing, basically. A lot of people say it's backed by energy, which I think is a kind of fun oversimplification. And then in Ethereum, you have you know a similar thing now with proof of stake where it's secured by 
uh, basically people who've got a lot of tokens, who've invested a lot of their capital in owning the tokens and becoming validators in the network. So again, we, we understand quite well, I think now, how blockchains are secured, but that is still one of the main things that people are interested in because, you know, that's fundamentally why they're meant to be good digital cash systems or good mm. uh, DeFi platforms because we know they're secure in practice. And it'd be interesting to see what actually happens because we talked in depth around like proof of work being very well battle tested, right? But proof of work is no longer the most popular kind of consensus algorithm, right? A lot of uh, chains are moving to proof of stake as we talked about proof of authority. There's lots of alternatives as well, which are maybe less battle tested. So it'd be really interesting to see how this kind of security characteristic plays out in all the modern chains that are kind of being designed to, I don't know, maybe compensate for some of the weaknesses that people kind of assume for proof of work, which is typically energy and scalability, right? But the last one, the last characteristic of the three that I want to come to is this term decentralization, this taboo term that me and Jack sometimes use, or maybe we should say distribution is probably the better term, but they're kind of one and the same, how we're using it here. And this principle is around the kind of the control and operation of the blockchain being amongst distributed actors, right? And we've kind of talked about this is one of the, the crucial points of a blockchain technology is that we're actually distributing the data and the people that can actually validate the data and contribute to the data in, in a blockchain to multiple parties. And this removes the idea of a single point of failure, really should help with, say, if there's a bad actor, there's ways to catch them out and ensure that good actors can actually contribute positively to, to the overall system. And we've kind of talked, I think we've talked in detail about you know what is distributed is a thousand nodes enough or is what is three nodes enough and this is a really interesting topic but it's the third characteristic that that's quite important for the conversation that we're having in this episode today you can go back and watch our decentralization episode where we go into this topic in detail because it is an interesting one again there's lots of different opinions on how decentralized different networks are you know bitcoin is effectively controlled more than 90 percent by like five or six different mm. mining pools and mining entities so it's it, it's an interesting characteristic, but as you said, it's about the single point of failure ultimately, and that's one of the, the, the kind of beautiful things about the design of blockchains is they're meant to be resilient to ever having a central point of failure. They shouldn't arise. You shouldn't get one in a blockchain. So yeah, that's the three main characteristics: right, scalability, security, decentralization. Now, where layer two comes in is what's the problem with layer one blockchains? Well, it's to do with this triad, or they call it a trilemma. Right. How do you get all three of these properties at once? There's something in computer science about threes. They love to put th three <laughs> things together and say you can't have them all at the same time. Right. But the reason we have layer twos now is because people have decided, and I think Vitalik Buterin was the one who kind of popularized this idea that you can't solve the scalability trilemma using just a layer one blockchain. You can't have scalability, de decentralization and security mm. at the same time. And I think that's the interesting thing, right, is this has kind of come about because the scalability wasn't really an issue because no one was really using blockchains at scale until maybe the last five years or something like this. So they kind until of existed. took off. Until Jack was the primary user of CryptoKitties and it took off and blew up the Ethereum. But yeah, like, so these blockchains were existing kind of in isolation in like labs, basically, for academic, as academic brainchilds, right? Mm. But now they've kind of hit the mainstream and people are actually trying to gain utility and use them for the scalability problems we were talking about earlier like billions of transactions a day to hit some of the digital cash thresholds that we need then yeah this trilemma problem really came to light and like you say vitalik popularized that and it's really interesting they do play off each other right so let's like talk about how 
how they actually are, how they have this problem of threes, right? So if we want to scale, like we want to actually get, say, Ethereum or, or Bitcoin to process millions of transactions a day, theoretically, then what happens? So the first one we're going to talk about is the scaling at the cost of decentralization. So when a network increases its scalability, it tries to actually process more transactions per second. It often leads to centralization. So, you know, larger block sizes might consolidate mining power to entities with more resources, reducing the number of nodes that are actually able to participate. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like if I have to send every transaction I process to 50 other actors, well, that's as soon as I'm processing millions of transactions, that's me having to send like 50 times that million transactions out mm -hmm. there into the environment. But if I have to send it to one person or a couple of people, or even if I have to hold it all myself, well, it makes the whole process far more efficient. And this is one of the things that we talked about earlier about the different Bitcoin forks, right? Is that actually this is something where we have the big blockers and then the small blockers that are actually trying to have a bit of philosophical debate around this topic and whether people do need to actually process the entire blockchain history or not. Yeah, it makes sense when you think about you know, why does it cause centralization? Why is it only big entities can then run high scaling blockchains? Well, think about the Web2 world we have with Twitter, Facebook. The things that have the highest throughput on the Internet are run by these huge companies, by massive, massive data centers, you know, mm -hmm. all across California and all parts of the world. They're humongous data centers that require a lot of resources, a lot of cost to maintain and actually uh, keep up. So, yeah, it makes sense that if you want to just scale a blockchain in terms of the space, the block size, then it's going to reduce the number of people who can do that. Mm -hmm. Second way you can scale is to change the time parameter, right? So if you want to maybe decrease the time between blocks so you get more transactions through per minute or per hour or something like that, you know, you have 10 minutes on Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum is actually much shorter. You can play with that idea. But that method of scaling also then comes at the cost of security, for example, because if you have faster block times, then you might be more susceptible to different kinds of security risks, okay, because there's less time to validate transactions in between blocks. And to think mm -hmm. of kind of an analogy for this, I like is if you've ever used a crypto exchange, then typically they'll say you need six confirmations or you need to wait till there's six blocks built on top of your transaction before they'll actually release the funds and let you trade them. Now, you could take that down to one or zero, but you're increasing the risk of there being a conflicting transaction or a problem mm. with your transaction in the network. So it, effectively, that would be scaling the crypto exchange, but at a risk of lower security for you as a user, basically. The way I was thinking of this is if you want to try and get people into a club, right, and you have a bouncer at the door searching people down, like if they spend one second searching people down, they're obviously going to let more people in than if they take two hours searching people down, right? And that's like an analogy for this. Like the higher the security concerns, the less easy it is to have high scalability. Um, and then, yeah, obviously the counter to all of this is that decentralization and security if you want to have a high level of decentralization, a high level of security obviously comes at the cost of scalability. And, you know, for example, BTC Bitcoin, they prioritize security and decentralization and they have really low and slow transaction speeds and much higher costs. For example, at BTC, I think we said on average is around seven transactions per second. Ethereum is around 30 transactions per second. So it's a, it seems like the big blockchains at the moment are really limited in their scalability because they push this security decentralization kind of philosophy. So the question is, what can we do? Are we doomed? Is there no such thing as a layer one anymore? Do we just go back to web two? No, that would probably be the end of the show. And not a good thing for us to talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, then we'd be back in 2017, right? Where everyone was panicking that, you know, well, what can we what can we do about this problem? 
So what can we do? Are we doomed to stay in this Web2 world and then just give up on all things blockchain? Well, one obvious thing we can do is actually try to revise and upgrade some of the underlying technology, right? And we've seen this play out a few times. We talked previously that BTC has several major forks that are kind of around upgrading the scalability without trying to detriment the decentralization and security too much. So they have like Bitcoin Cash, BSV, and these are different protocols. Ethereum has been upgrading its protocol to proof of stake for a long time now but this in itself creates problems right if you have this kind of community that's all banding together towards ethereum or bitcoin you don't want to then divide the community into different forks like forks can create a lot of problems it's actually quite difficult to do you have a lot of people relying on you and you don't want to all of a sudden change the underlying protocol because lots of bad things can happen yeah and as you say right when you when you split the community that also is go back to the point about sacrifice and security you then split how much of the hash power or the staking money that you have in the network you split that across different factions so it's not even perfect from that kind of scalability perspective but yeah so what else can we do then the other option if we don't want to just tinker at the base layer is to build on top of it right and that's exactly where layer twos come in and also building on the side things like side chains but i think we'll focus on side chains again in a future episode and we'll stick with just layer two for now so what are layer two scaling solutions well in short they are, as we say, just things built on top or third-party systems on top of the base blockchain that are designed to enhance efficiency, scalability of the underlying blockchain. And there's lots of different approaches to doing this, and we'll kind of go through a couple of those. But the crucial thing is they're designed generally to take either data or computation or both off the layer one chain and something that's on the layer one chain, we'd say is on-chain. And then it's designed to take computation or data or both off-chain. That's the core uh, thinking behind L2s. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've seen is that the term bundling, like say you have, I don't know, the layer one's trying to process like 100 transactions per second. Well, you kind of extract some of that and say you process 90 of those transactions in a different place. Someone validates them on your behalf and then you'll just bundle them together and submit some reference to the transactions that you've done off chain. And like I say this has become extremely popular. We'll talk about some of the examples, but just to name drop a few, we have the Lightning Network, which is obviously a very big one. And we'll talk a little bit later about um, what's going on in El Salvador because they actually base all their infrastructure off the Lightning Network, which is a bit mad. Um, but do you want to talk about some of the examples and some of the ways that we can actually do this in a bit more detail? Yeah, ex- definitely. And, you know, the nice analogy for the whole picture is, as you said, like bundling and or batching. You have a similar thing in the old kind of traditional banking world. So you have what they call real-time gross settlement systems, RTGS, which is kind of for moving money in real time between banks. So when you make a payment from one bank to another, then they're using this real-time system. Or you can have what's called net settlement. So instead of doing every transaction, they'll just let all the bank accounts independently debit and credit all day. And then whatever the net is, whatever the final state is at the end of the day, they'll settle that. And layer two is much more similar to that net settlement idea. So you're just kind of recording the end state. So on that, and with that example in mind, one of the first and earliest ways of doing layer two was actually what we call state channels. And this is basically what Lightning Network in Bitcoin or something like the Ryden Network in Ethereum are actually based on. So state channels are a way of taking your money, your your account, for want of a better word, your wallet, and treating the state or the amount of money in it as this off-chain thing that you can go and pay. So me and Alec could set up a state channel together, and it's quite peer-to-peer, actually. So mm. you know, h- him and I would say, okay, we've both got five pounds each, 
and we're going to start playing tiddlywinks for 10p, 10p a go. So, you know, I might win a game, I'd win 10p, he might win the next game, get 10p back. So the money constantly going back and forth between us. And at the end, say I've won 100 games and he's only won 10 because he's not very good at tiddlywinks, then I would end up with that larger balance and we'd settle. So we do this net settlement piece at the end, right? So again, this yeah. is what Lightning Network is based on and is very similar in analogy to opening a bar tab, right? And then just paying at the end what the final state is. So how does that work in practice? So typically, again, it's peer-to-peer -peer normally. So you have two people like me and Alec who want to start one of these channels. So we have what's called an opening of the channel. We set it up. We both lock some money in there. So basically we have um, our initial balance in, in this channel set up. Then we do our number of off-chain transactions back and forth, you know, while we're playing Tiddlywinks. And then finally, we'll close that channel at the end. And basically, all that goes on-chain is the start, the opening of the channel, and the ending, the final balance, and how we close the channel and release our funds again. So all the time between, our funds are effectively locked in this channel, and we're just passing it back and forth based on whatever do we're doing. And there's only two events to go on-chain. So that's fundamentally how the state channel model works. Yeah, I've seen like comparisons of this to if someone's say doing, I don't know, a job for you, like they regularly submit some kind of jobs and they want to instead of I say do a year's worth of work, I can say upfront put 100 grand into one of these channels. And every time you complete some bit of work for me, I'll give you one grand of that 100 grand that's on chain. But rather than me sending a grand every single month or every single week for the work you do and incurring lots of transaction fees as a result of that, if I just lock 100 grand into that, you know that there's some kind of security and I have some kind of proof of funds. So you feel that, okay, actually, I'm going to give you the money. And then off chain, I'll basically give you some transaction that you're allowed to submit at any time which enables you to actually gain, say, the first grand, and then after two weeks worth of the second grand, the third grand. And at any point in that state channel, you can actually submit the transaction and say, okay, well, actually, I've done enough work now. I'm going to take 50 grand of that 100 grand and job's done and we've settled and that's the channel ended. Yeah, it's quite a powerful tool, right? Especially when we kind of think about, you know, microtransactions or you know, multi-party stuff, like when you want to spend lots of frequent transactions. And we kind of talked in previous episodes about the idea of people wanting to break down monthly payments into daily payments, into secondly payments potentially and these kind of these offer a really cool solution to do that yeah and as you said that's really crucial right there's different things in place to protect your money and the fact you know if you have been paid so many times then you still want to be able to get out what you should be owed at a given point in time because when you set up that channel you actually are almost normally predefining a future date when you're expecting to close it so if anything goes wrong in the interim there is actually a way you can get out of it and there are a few different models for doing these state channels one of the biggest and most popular ones is cash time locked contracts, which is what is exactly what's used in the Lightning Network, right? Now, I said they were peer to peer, and that's the ideal way. And lots of the oldest ones, which go back to like 2013, 14, were peer to peer. In the Lightning Network, it's a bit more complex because actually you have, as the name suggests, a network of people that you try and route your funds through. So it's kind of recreates this very complex web of money flowing around. And, and you know, again, we'll probably cover that all in a future episode. But the good thing about them is that if you take something like Bitcoin, the fees are very high if you want to directly pay on-chain. If you move to the off-chain Lightning Network, the fees are actually significantly lower because you're not demanding block space in Bitcoin. The base layer, layer one, 
every time you want to transact, you're just keeping a lot of it off chain uh, in the interim. Yeah. So that is state channels, which you said is kind of gaining popularity. Lightning Network, things like this. The other type that we have that's gaining popularity is rollups or zero knowledge rollups. There's actually a few different types of this. But like I say, we're going to cover zero knowledge proofs because zero knowledge technology generally is gaining a lot of popularity. It's very critical for Web3 going forward. So we'll do an entire episode on that. But these zero knowledge, like layer two rollups, effectively similarly to what Jack was talking about, bundle multiple transactions off chain and they validate them using these zero knowledge proofs, right? And then submit a single proof of the entire kind of bundle of transactions back to the main blockchain. And this has a couple of other benefits as well. It maintains data privacy, reduces the load on blockchain similar to before and significantly improves, improves the scalability and efficiency. Yeah, I, I think rollups are just generally very interesting. As you say, the core idea behind rollups broadly is batching, as we said before. But there are different flavors. So there are two broad types that are used. And again, lots of this is Ethereum based because that's where a lot of this work's going on. The first type is what's called optimistic rollups, which is funny because actually what they do is they assume your transactions are valid by default, right? So it's like, again, doing that lack of checking at the door of the bouncer and you're going into your club, they're not really checking. But you can be challenged with what's called a fraud proof later. And if you do have a valid fraud proof that says, well, that transaction, you should have checked him. He's brought in something he shouldn't have. Then the person who produced that block will be slashed this idea of losing some of their block reward. So that's the optimistic case. Now, we mm -hmm. don't want to focus on that. As you said, we want to focus on these much cooler zero knowledge rollups because they're much more powerful and they don't assume that it's valid by default. They actually provide proof up front they say actually no this is valid and here i can prove mm -hmm. why but it as you say uses these zero knowledge proof and zero knowledge snarks they're called but again we're not going to go into that today that's the technology it uses and it's very sophisticated cryptography it's a field that's moving very fast right now that can help you basically prove things about generalized computation right so you can mm -hmm. prove that this smart contract executed in a given way but you can prove those statements to someone and convince them without having to give them all the data without having to have them reproduce that whole computation themselves. So zero knowledge rollups are this idea of batching a bunch of transactions together and then providing a really small compact proof that this whole batch of transactions does represent the last thousand transactions that happened in Ethereum. Okay, that makes sense. I think one of the things I've read is that it's actually quite hard to generalize these computations, right, in a lot of ways. So the actual creating of the computation right now is probably as difficult as maybe the cost of actually doing them on the main chain anyway. But it seems like becoming more efficient and more scalable. So this could be like a really positive direction for layer two scalability in the future. Yeah, definitely. If you'd asked this question like three years ago when I kind of first heard about them, then people were saying, well, this stuff is fine. It's clever, but it's not very efficient. And it's still true. It's not as efficient as doing some of the other techniques and, you know, state channels and things potentially, but it's getting faster all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so exciting because there's so many people working to improve on that base technology. And yet, as you pointed out, really importantly, making it useful for general purpose computation is hard enough in the real world. And, you know, it's kind of been solved more or less now, but then making it compatible with the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine mm. is a whole other challenge, which has only kind of seen breakthroughs in the last year, two years maximum. So now we are starting to see what can you do when you have EVM compatible zero knowledge rollup systems, And it's really exciting. But again, the key take home point without going into the detail is that you can batch all this stuff up and you can prove that all these things happen off chain. So yeah, it's very impressive stuff, not to get too far down the zero knowledge path, 
but the most popular rollups are still the optimistic type. So there's about 11 billion locked in the most popular optimistic rollups protocols right now called Arbitrum. Um, there's only around 500 million in ZK Sync, which is the most popular zero knowledge one. And it's going to be shifting over the next few years. So I think we just got to keep an eye on it. Okay. So I think it's kind of obvious. We kind of hinted at it throughout what some of the pros and cons of layer twos are, but just to highlight those. Well, the first one is increased throughput, right? We're saying that there's a scalability problem and uh, say on Ethereum and Bitcoin and a lot of the layer ones by bundling transactions on a layer two and then referencing them back on chain on the layer one. That means we can have you know, more scalability, more throughput, more transactions processed per second effectively. And as we hinted at there as well, this can also reduce the gas fees. If we're processing a thousand transactions off chain and only putting one transaction on chain you'd hope that the transactions on the layer two are much more cost effective than they are on the underlying layer one yes exactly and you know that's the key as we said is like taking some of the data or computation off chain being able to interact with the blockchain the layer one indir indirectly but at a much much lower cost so that's that's a clear benefit of using these systems as well as the fact that you get, you know, especially with the zero knowledge stuff that we're talking about, the privacy enhancement you get from this. Now, I say privacy enhancement because you could flip it on its head in a minute and call it a con. But you, by minimizing the amount of data you put on the blockchain, you're also mm -hmm. minimizing the attack surface from a privacy perspective for that. Yeah, I guess one of the things I've read there is that you're involving more parties, though, in the loop potentially mm -hmm. as well by starting to do things on layer twos. And it's like, what's the point? And we're probably going to get this in the end. Like, what's the point of involving a layer two? It's like an additional party and like all this kind of stuff is actually a weakness of the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about some of the cons. We've kind of only talked about layer twos as a benefit to everything. But one of the things that we hinted at was complexity. Like, it's actually really difficult to implement some of these things, especially on the ZK rollups and ZK snarks that Jack was talking about earlier just because due to the cryptographic complexity of trying to prove a thousand transaction in one transaction that's actually really difficult to do it should be simple to verify typically but the actual generation of the computation is quite tricky to do yeah and as it is improving all the time but it's always going to be more variables you're adding into the system as compared with using it as a layer one so i typically say ideally you would use layer one if the costs were lower that's what you want to do right because you get much mm. faster confirmation you get better guarantee that what's happened has happened. But the complexity is, you know, as with all these things, it is improving over time. It just happens to be starting from a very complex place to start with. The other issue I think we should mention is this data availability issue. So but the privacy benefits of not putting everything on chain kind of rear their head as a, well, you can't necessarily prove everything about a transaction. You can't go and check everything that happened. You might have this compact proof that the net result, again, RTGS versus net settlement, you can prove what the net was, but you can't necessarily prove all the states in between. You can't go and prove that actually Alec won the first 50 games of Tiddlywinks mm -hmm. before I won the next thousand, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They'd only see what the final net result was. So that's not ideal, right? Yeah. And I think um, one of the last things that we probably is a con on this stuff is around the interoperability between like different layer twos. You talked about layer noughts, chains providing interoperability underneath the layer ones. And it's kind of, well, we're getting more and more isolation potentially by having, you know, layer twos that are just based on layer ones and kind of fixing that. And maybe it's also linked to the fact that we have more intermediaries involved in the loop with their own kind of set private custodials or whatever you want to call them that kind of separate this stuff off. I guess, yeah, the big question here is, you know, does this actually solve the trilemma cost? Are they actually a layer two who's actually solving the problem right now. Yeah, this is a big kind of bugbear for me. Well, I actually have an issue with the premise to begin with, but I'm going to maybe park that for a minute about you know whether the trilemma even exists 
to start <laughs> with. But, you know, let's let's assume it does. Then, yeah, have we actually solved that with layer twos? Because as you said, you are introducing these additional third parties. For me, that is essentially sacrificing some element of trust. You are typically mm. giving up some trust and we haven't given the details of how the ZK snarks work yet. But part of that, you know, depending on which implementation, it's not just magic, right? The, the maths behind it can seem like magic, but there is some kind of level of sacrifice happening. You don't just get the benefits of it for free. So to my mind, it is strictly less secure. And I'm yeah. willing to kind of go out and say that it's strictly less secure than if you were using it, again, directly natively on layer one. So yeah, you're getting more scalability, but at some extra cost. And it's not even easy to quantify that cost, right? And does it matter? That's a whole other question. But I think it's important to know that there is something you lose by going to layer two. Yeah, I've seen like articles and there's like a lot of news in the past around these layer twos being security problems and like hacks and breaches happening at the layer twos because they're typically fairly unbattle tested compared to the layer ones that are built upon. And it's just like you say, a complete single point of failure there if you're sending all your transactions off to this unknown party effectively and not knowing how secure they actually are. So yeah, it's a big question. Do they solve the trilemma problem or do they just solve one part of the trilemma problem? So some interesting facts around this area. One we mentioned earlier is that the Lightning Network was adopted by El Salvador. Like Obviously, they want to use it as legal tender. They realized that Bitcoin was the angle they wanted to go for. But for day-to-day -day transactions, they knew they didn't have the throughput. So they're actually yeah, using right now the Lightning Network as a scalable solution to actually transact with, which is quite an interesting one. I think early days, this well, initially was a huge boon, right? People were saying this is incredible. When this was first announced at one of the big Bitcoin conferences, I was saying this is a huge step forward. You know, El Salvador making Bitcoin legal tender and saying we're going to go kind of full in on this idea. And then there came a year of maybe memes against El Salvador because <laughs> there were teething problems. Not everyone wanted it. There were, I think, some demonstrations in the public against it. But now if you ask people their actual day-to-day -day experience, people say you can very much use Bitcoin at the Lightning Network daily for all your kind of daily needs. So yeah, they've, they've done something that no other nation on, on earth has really done, which is quite exciting and shows it shows that there is something there to, to using a layer two scaling, I think. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps that Bitcoin's currently very up and I think their investment <laughs> in El Salvador has actually come through. Yeah. If you'd have asked them like two months ago, maybe they wouldn't have been as popular. But yeah, it is an interesting one. And kind of on that point as well, it's another big thing is that it's interesting that Ethereum's roadmap actually kind of states that there is going to be this transition and a heavy emphasis on layer two scaling solutions. You know, Vitalik was one of the big proponents of this trilemma problem. And it seems like Ethereum generally has kind of accepted it as a, a flaw in the system and they have to be reliant on layer twos to kind of take the scalability forward and ensure that Ethereum can be deployed and are high transactions around the world, which is, I think, it's a bit sad, really. <laughs> They've kind of given up a little bit on improving Ethereum to the point at which it can do everything, right? Yeah, I think it comes back to the fact that people hold this idea of decentralization or this perception that having many nodes validating is decentralization, whether or not you agree mm. with that. That idea is so powerful in the minds of many of the people influential in crypto and many of the users that they are simply, you know, that's that's the mountain they're willing to eye on. So, yeah, it, I see that this trend of moving to layer two kind of broadly across the industry is only going to continue. And speaking of trends, one of the other interesting things that we've seen, some of these newer networks like your polygons, for example, which kind of I've seen it described as a layer zero and a layer two, which doesn't help. <laughs> for this episode but think of it as you know it's still it's a, it's aiming to help scale ethereum at its core 
And that has been adopted very widely for all sorts of different things, right? It's been used uh, by major platforms like Starbucks, Reddit, Nike. I'm pretty sure at one point there was also an integration with uh, Instagram for NFTs, for mm. Polygon. So, you know, it's made really big inroads. And all of this has been on layer two infrastructure because lots of the big brands and the lots of big companies who want to dip their toes into Web3, they, they one of the immediate problems they have is the lack of scalability, the high cost of doing so. So naturally, they have chosen to use these layer two solutions as the first way to kind of test the waters with what they want to do. Yeah, I think they used to be called Matic or something like that, right? When yeah. they were just a scaling solution for Ethereum. And now they're kind of, I think their angles like multi-chain system and they're going mm. towards this more yeah. interoperability layer, which is, I mean, it's worked quite well. I mean, Polygon's like always in the news these days right i think mark cuban invested in them as well which is a major adoption like on every exchange obviously i think they're pushing quite heavily into the gaming sector which is always a, a big one for this kind of stuff and i think yeah we're kind of coming to the, the closing section of this episode it's like what's the future look like for this space and i think one of the big things when it comes to adoption is cost right it's how much does it cost to use these things and can it keep up with my daily transactions and i think most people will see a layer two as a way to do that they'll look at okay what are the transactions per second and how much does it cost me to use it and immediately they'll be like well this is cheaper and faster that's better i'm going to use it and i think as soon as you say we've got the security of ethereum but we're cheaper and faster unless someone's doing their due diligence and looking into actually okay how are you achieving the same level of security as ethereum you're probably not for example i think that it's going to help with adoption but there might be some security problems that probably come from these yeah i agree and if you're thinking about the future one of the trends i would actually see is this revival around layer one scaling right because mm. you've had something like solana come along which is basically trying to be a layer one scalable version of ethereum that is actually not just saying let's shift it all to layer two they are trying to do as much as possible on layer one you've also had other recent entrants like aptos and sui with some really mm. smart people behind them trying to solve things from layer one and I, I think one thing we haven't really mentioned is that layer one scaling and layer two scaling are not mutually exclusive you can do both right so mm. i would like to see more work being done in both areas i think all the developments with zk rollups are great and they will be very useful for all blockchains in the future, potentially, because they are typically, you know, can be quite agnostic to different chains too. But the layer one developments are almost as important, if not more important. So to get this used by everyone and to have all our internet activity mediated by a blockchain, mm. I think we're almost certainly going to have to have cracked it in both of the two domains for sure. Yeah, I saw someone say something along the lines of if you need layer two, then your layer one's not right. And I think with the big chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum, maybe it is tricky to get those substantial upgrades done. Like you've seen how long it took for the, the you know, Ethereum 2.0 to come. But like a, a chain like Solano, you know, smaller community, they're a bit less risk averse. Maybe they can actually achieve what everyone's trying to achieve on the layer two at the layer one. But it probably is tricky with the momentum that Ethereum, Bitcoin have and the people on there right now to all of a sudden you know, overnight change the entire protocol to but okay, this is how we get more scalable. But yeah, layer ones ideally, but there's always probably going to be a place for layer twos, I guess, in the future. Yeah, well, I think that's a decent place to wrap this one up. I think it's a good self-contained topic, layer zero, layer one, layer two. We didn't go into so much detail on layer zeros because, again, I think that it's such a complex and abstract thing. We probably want to talk about that in a separate episode, similar with the zero knowledge tech. That's going to require much deeper commentary on right to explain exactly what they are. But the most important thing to take away is that we have effectively these three layers, these core components of 
most Web3 systems now. And it's good to know, you know, where it sits and whether you're using, typically whether you're using a layer one or a layer two, that's the big question. So yeah, I think with that, we'll say to our audience, thank you for listening wherever you may be and join us next time to untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.